Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 27, and it is found on page 6 of your bulletin. Whatever happens, excuse me, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This morning, we're continuing in our study of the book of Philippians, and I'll be beginning first with a recent article from the Charleston Post and Courier, but first, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit, that more than anything else, that he would draw our attention to your son whom we most need, Christ our Savior. So please descend upon this place to every person's heart and life that our testimony collectively and individually might be God was truly here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. About 60 people wrap up Emanuel AME Church's usual quarterly conference, a time to welcome the district's presiding elder and to tackle routine business matters. It's late and everyone's hungry. The Reverend Daniel Simmons, a 74-year-old retired minister, suggests postponing a regularly scheduled Bible study set to follow. After a 90-minute meeting, the clock ticks toward 7.30 p.m. Stomachs grumble. Let's do a little of it, Myra Thompson suggests. The 59-year-old whose ministry license was just renewed is eager to lead the Bible study. The Reverend DePayne Middleton doctor agrees only minutes have passed since the district's presiding elder officially welcomed the 49-year-old into the ranks of licensed African Methodist Episcopal ministers. Most members head out into the humid night, but 12 remain to worship. They are a diverse lot of the faithful, young and old, a librarian, an 87-year-old family matriarch, a speech therapist, a custodian, a widow, a retired minister, a new college graduate. Yet they are connected deeply by bonds of family, friendship, and faith. Cynthia Hurd decides to stay a librarian. The 54-year-old often works evenings and usually cannot join in. 
herd sits down with the others in the church's lower level beneath a historic sanctuary that has welcomed the likes of Martin Luther King Jr. They gather in a large room surrounded with smaller meeting spaces and offices, including the Reverend Clementa Pinckney's. Lime green and white papers are stacked on the tables. People talk and visit and sit in white fold-out chairs at round tables with white tablecloths set out across the room. The space is often used for church dinners and social functions. The Reverend Pinckney, Simmons, Thompson, Doctor, and her join Sharonda Coleman Singleton, Ethel Lance, Polly Shepard, Susie Jackson, Tawanza Sanders, his mother, Felisa Sanders, and her little granddaughter. In an hour, tragedy will bond them forever. The group launches into an opening hymn. About 40 others have left the meeting, leaving cars dotting the church's parking lot. One parking spot by the door sits empty. As he wheels his dark 2000 Hyundai Elantra into the church's parking lot, Dylan's storm roof has no way of knowing that the building might well have been empty had members canceled the Bible study. His only hint is the handful of cars scattered around the large lot as the sky glows from the setting evening sun. At 8.16 p.m., Roof points his car into a space reserved for handicapped access and parks as close as he can to the church's street-level meeting and office areas. He wears a long-sleeved gray shirt and dark pants even though temperatures soar into the 90s. A half minute later, he reaches for a handle to an elegant wooden side door which leads to the Bible study room. It is left unlocked to welcome members and strangers alike. He steps into the Bible study session and its dozen attendees, including much of the church's clergy. A 21-year-old white man, he is slight of frame and wears his hair in a bowl cut. He stands out, but to some gathered, he simply looks clean-cut and seems decent, almost shy. Besides, in the AME church, all people are welcomed with love, embraced by its members. Saying little else, Roof asks who the minister is. When told that Pinckney, 41, is the church's head pastor, Roof sits near him at a round table. The group invites the guests to join their study of Mark 4, verses 16 to 20. About 9 p.m., the Bible study concludes... As the group prepares to share a concluding prayer, Roof suddenly stands, pulls out a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, and says he has come to kill black people. He shoots the Reverend Pinckney first at near point-blank range. Simmons tries to protect the pastor, a father of two young children, but Roof shoots him multiple times too. As Roof unloads his gun into the remaining people who had welcomed him, they fall from wounds or to avoid being shot. First Coleman Singleton, a 45-year-old church pastor and track coach at Goose Creek High School, then Thompson, and on and on. Somehow, Felicia Sanders remains composed enough to pull her five-year-old granddaughter down with her and whispers, play dead.
The two lie on the cold floor, covered in the spilled warm blood of their friends and family. Sanders feels the heat of each gun blast, hears the clank of casings echoing onto the hard tile, and struggles to hold utterly still even as Ruth stops to reload. Her son, 26-year-old Tuanza Sanders, tries to take advantage of the halt and gunfire to calm Ruth and talk him out of more bloodshed, but Ruth replies that he's there to do a job and he must finish it. He shoots Sanders, then the rest, including Susie Jackson, a beloved aunt whose Sanders couldn't save with his final, most desperate words. At 87, she is the oldest worshiper there. All of the dead and dying suffer multiple gunshot wounds. As Ruth starts out of the building, he passes Polly Shepherd, who is on her knees praying and has somehow avoided his rampage so far. He asks her if she's shot. She says, no. I'm going to let you live so you can tell the story of what happened, Ruth says, telling her he plans to kill himself. With Felicia Sanders and her granddaughter still pretending to be dead, with Shepard still alive, Ruth returns to the church door, looks both ways as he opens it and climbs into his car and leaves. It's about 9.15, one hour after he arrived. Two others also survive unseen by Ruth, locked in the Reverend Pinckney's office, the pastor's wife, Jennifer Pinckney, and one of their daughters. After police arrive, the survivors are sent to the Embassy Suites Hotel across Meeting Street, some sobbing, some far too stunned to react. Polly Shepard, the sister who was spared by the shooter, scrolls through the contacts on Ethel Lance's cell phone picked up after the shootings until she sees one she recognizes. It's Willie McGee. At 74, he's long served in the church on its history and archives committee. He killed everybody, she says. They're all dead. And if we've got our study of Philippians 1 correct over the last week, we know it's not the end of the story. Because if to live is Christ for these nine brothers and sisters, then for them that evening to die was gain. For them better by far to depart and to be with the Lord. Rejoicing even now with joy, unimaginable, unspeakable. And yet even still, this morning, I want to call you and me, church, to stand in solidarity. In unity with our brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina, and in the African Methodist Episcopal Church across the country, even in this city, mourning the loss of lives yet again because of racism and violence, and to stand in solidarity with other Christians of all backgrounds, races, and stripes 
across the country who today are lamenting the racial sickness that beleaguers our nation and our churches. Which of course emerges from no other place but this passage before us here today. After all, the central focus of this part of Paul's letter to the Philippian church located in the northeast part of ancient Greece, the focus is that of the themes of Christian unity and solidarity, especially in the face of pressure and opposition. We heard language like, stand firm in one spirit, like striving together as one. Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Of course, this isn't just a theoretical exercise, neither for us nor for the original Philippian church. They were a church wrestling with poverty and pressure, persecution, opposition, dissension, and division. It's no wonder why the language that the apostle chooses to use are taken from the military realm. Chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm. Stand together. Be on guard. From the work realm, striving together as one. The language of laborers in a field cooperating together. Words taken from the athletic realm. Uh, verse 30, you are going through the same struggle. It's the language of a marathon. Same struggle you saw that I had. And then more and most explicitly in verse 28, stand firm without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. But what kind of solidarity is Paul talking about here? What kind of unity that ought to be shared amongst Christians? He points us to the unity of our hands, you might say. Uh, people that are in Christ working together and collaborating together. In verse 27, again, he talks about striving together as one. It's the language of complementary pieces and workers with different skills contributing to a common cause or project. The unity of interdependence of being able to say to one another in community and across communities, I, we need you. It's the unity of hearts. You see in chapter 2, verse 2 there, the call to be like-minded. Uh, thinking in the same manner, not as clones of each other, but being of a single mind and purpose together. He says, having the same love, the engagement of our passions and affections and emotions. He says, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
That's the unity of a shared attitude, mind, will, emotions. He's calling us to a unity of purpose. He says, striving together as one, what? For the faith of the gospel. That the whole world would know the greatness of the story of a God who humbled himself in the person of Jesus. That we who had no way of making ourselves right with God, no matter the sincerity of our hearts, nor the goodness of our deeds, that we could not, would not merit our way into God's favor. And so he had to send a gift of grace, and he did. Jesus dying in our place, under the law of justice, rising again for our salvation, this good news of grace that binds people for a common purpose. And fourthly, the unity of identity, not only hands and heart and purpose, but unity of identity. You notice in verse 27, the apostle talks about standing firm in one spirit, the very life of God that dwells within those who embrace his son brought to spiritual life from spiritual death, given spiritual power to believe, to live, to love. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, again, he refers to the common sharing in the Spirit. All these different ways in which we're called to solidarity with those who bear the name of Christ in this room and beyond this room. And all of them together, all of these dimensions of solidarity being a part of the whole of our unity and harmony with each other. You see, because if all you have is the unity of identity and not the rest, then what you have is a unity of theory but no reality, no real relationships. If all you have is a unity of hands working together and nothing else, then all you are are business partners, but with no common heart and no common purpose. If all you have is the unity of heart, then all you've got is a kumbaya circle that falls apart the minute your unity starts to actually cost you something. And cost these Philippians unity did. So the question for us, of course, is, are you ready for it? Do you long for it? This sort of Christian solidarity. I mean, which of these dimensions maybe are you leaving out in your relationships with one another, even in this room? I mean, I wonder if one just very concrete application of this in living out this kind of harmony and solidarity with each other in our local community, is who do you have divisions and beef and distance with today? Is there a solidarity that you need to heal, address, and bring closer to? I'm talking about of all kinds. Because we just live with weirdness and tensions and awkwardness and unresolved issues, don't we? Friends, I'm not, I'm not even at this moment talking in terms of our racial issues. I'm just talking about our relationships and the health of them. 
What might a commitment to Christian solidarity look like in here and even this week? Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to work things out with this week? But maybe beyond this church community, what could this kind of solidarity and unity look like with other Christian communities in this neighborhood as well? Beyond ourselves, but with other Christians, yes, of perhaps different stripes or different flavors, differences here and there, but churches and communities that share this same gospel, that have that commitment to unity of purpose, of embracing and extending the one faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also specifically this week, can we be a community that expresses our solidarity with our African-American brothers and sisters in Charleston, South Carolina? And with black brothers and sisters at large, whether sitting in our own pews or across our city, or across our nation, worshiping in many different churches in different communities? Can we be a church that weeps with those who weep, mourning the violence and the loss of life, expressing and deeply feeling, do you feel it, the righteous anger at continuing evil and violence because of our God-given differences in our various tribes, tongues, nations, colors, and peoples. Can we be, even this week, or grow into being a church that stands up and stares at racism and injustice and violence of this sort, and together rising up with brother and sister and declares, that's enough. That's enough. Enough to the racial violence committed against black brothers and sisters in Christ and the black community at large. Enough to the fresh temptation, perhaps, to be afraid when a racial outsider walks into your Bible study now, unsure of hate is about to erupt. Enough to the descriptions of young Dylan Roof as a lone wolf when we are all a part of the dysfunctional wolf pack in which he was raised. Enough to defensiveness and deflection in the church on matters related to race. Enough to willful blindness to the racialization of American society. And surely there will be some who will say, well, aren't these social matters and not spiritual ones? I think you would understand if we were to reason together that when someone comes in to a study of our shared scriptures, in worship of our same shared Savior and kills nine 
whom we will call both now and for all of eternity our brothers and sisters in Christ that we can say with confidence that these are not simply social matters they've become family matters and that the gospel in fact is at stake if we would heed carefully Paul's own words written to another church in Ephesus chapter 2 verse 14 for Christ himself is our peace who has made Jew and Gentile one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility the reconciliation and harmony that we long for the solidarity that we want to commit ourselves towards is the very thing for which Christ died which of course was the vision that the Apostle John also carried forward and put into words in Revelation 5 when he got a glimpse into the heavens themselves and where he saw in his words angels and saints who sang a new song saying worthy are you the lamb for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and so we live this and we love this and we engage and we weep and we mourn and we pray and we repent not just so we can get along lift up your sights to Christ friends we do this not just for ourselves and not just for the world we do this for Christ who deserves the fullness of the reward of his suffering shed by his blood So why? Why are we talking about solidarity as Paul talks about solidarity with those who are in Christ, both in this room as well as beyond this room? Why this unity? Well, he gives us a few things. I'll move through them quickly. First of all, notice that this unity is at the heart of the gospel. Paul sees it as a priority. The whole passage here starts off in chapter 1, verse 27 with this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's saying your whole life, your daily life, your behavior, your thoughts, your desires, your motivations, every part of who you are, if you are in Christ, should match the worth of the gospel should display, should put on display how precious Jesus is to you. That's all of life. Show the supreme value 
of Jesus. Reveal the greatness of his love. Show the power of his forgiveness. Show that you have a father who's taking care of you. All of life. But notice, he brings it down to a very narrow focus very quickly. The rest of the passage deals with unity. In other words, he is singling out in this time one of the preeminent expressions of living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that is to live in solidarity with one another. We just do not get this. We're just so divided interpersonally across churches, across races, and so on and so forth. We live with division and we don't understand how deeply Christ cares about bringing us together by his blood. The apostle echoes the heart of Christ in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. In other words, what would give me the greatest joy? What would make me dance? Uh, to hear you rattle off more Bible verses? Oh yeah, maybe. To see you change the world? Yeah, maybe. To see you do a lot of good deeds in the home? Yes, maybe, definitely. I think those things are true, but make my joy complete by what? Being one. As one commentator, Alec Matir, put it, we see what the central characteristic of the worthy life is. It is the life of unity. And John Calvin himself, in the 16th century, calls this solidarity amongst Christians the chief indication of a prosperous condition of the church. So this really matters. It's a priority of the gospel. But secondly, notice also Paul talks about the role that our unity has in presenting a witness both to the world and to the church. Verse 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by God. This is a sign to the world, to those that oppose you, that they will be destroyed. In other words, brought to conviction of sin and judgment, brought to the end of themselves in order that they might be washed over by the grace of God and the story of his salvation. I mean, you think about this. If you saw any of the stories or reports or even the video of these family members, I believe it was on Friday, expressing their desire, no, their promise to forgive the killer of their own dear family members. Person after person offering stunning, humbling forgiveness, looking at this video screen of the killer right before their eyes. It's no surprise that you find things like this on YouTube. Charles C.W. Cook, some person, I don't know who he is, but who posted a video of these overtures of forgiveness from family members with this caption, I am a non-Christian and I must say this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. After all, as author and writer Andy Crouch also 
said on social media, is it possible, is it possible that Dylan Roof was extended more mercy and love in 10 minutes on Friday than in his entire previous life? The witness of forgiveness, the witness, however, of unity, even beyond that which Paul is pointing to, that somehow unity itself could be another remarkable advertisement for Christianity and the person of Christ. People that are, as one theologian has called it, natural enemies. And perhaps no business being in relationship and community together, working past divisions, working across hate, working beyond arrogance in order to forge new relationships called brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. As Jesus himself said and prayed that they, we, might all be one so that the world may believe. Would you dare to embark on a mission called unity to present to the world a solidarity that's uncommon indeed out of this world. But also Paul points us to the witness of the church. It's a sign that you will be saved. Certainly again, validating to our own souls the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit bringing us together. I'm going to push forward more quickly to wrap us up. How though this unity, how do we forge this unity? A simple message to close on. If the greatest threat to our solidarity is pride and self-centeredness, which it is, then the greatest antidote is not simply more effort, though it takes extreme effort. It's humility. We see in verse 3 in chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. See, all divisions amongst us emerge out of pride, don't they? The pride of having to be right. The pride of having to be better, of getting your way. I mean, do you understand? If you don't feel bonded to another person, if you don't feel this solidarity that we're talking about, if you feel distance, whether if it's a person right next to you, or if it's of a person of a different racial background or of a community of a different background across the country or all around you. If you feel like you're not standing or striving together, ask yourself, where is my pride contributing to our disunity here? Search your hearts. And oh, to grow in this sort of humility that the Apostle points us to, not looking to our own interests, but rather to look at the interests of others, including in doing that by way of repentance, which is a form of putting others first, acknowledging their pain and wounds, and seeing the ways in which we contribute to the woundedness of people's lives and of this world. How do you cultivate this humility? It takes grace, doesn't it? It takes the grace 
of the Holy Spirit through a deep and rich experience of Christ. You see in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul does not skip over this all-important source of the changed heart that brings us together. He says, if any of you have been encouraged by being united with Christ or comforted by his love or have experienced a common sharing in the Spirit or the tenderness of Christ or his compassion, have you experienced the love and the self-humbling of Jesus, dear friends? Has it changed your life? Have you sunk your heart into it? Have you opened wide your proud soul to the self-humbling one, the dying one, the crucified one, that he might let you live and soar in self-humbling love, that through his grace you might find unity with other people as you put the interests of others before you do your own as Christ has done for you. Pastor and scholar, Dr. Richard Phillips in Greenville, South Carolina, online tells a story of how he visited Allen Temple AME Church for a prayer vigil the other night, a vigil for the nine victims in Greenville. And he writes this about it, expressing the joy of the unity and the fellowship that he shared he, a white brother, together with his African-American brothers and sisters. As I had expected, he wrote, we white believers felt completely at home. Sure, there were differences in style, expression, and dare I say volume. But these were our people and we were their people. From the moment we walked in the doors, we felt completely at home. The church members were so grateful for our coming and we were so blessed to be there. But our bond resulted from more than Southern hospitality. It was our shared faith in the blood, the cross, the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit and the uplifting experience of gospel-infused corporate worship that made us feel the oneness that is ours in Christ. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us here? Shall we share solidarity in this room and across this nation with our brothers and sisters, this oneness that is ours in Christ? What do we need? But a shared faith in the blood of the cross. What do we need? In the church and in the world, but the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit the uplifting experience of gospel-infused corporate worship, what do we need but the person of Christ? Let's pray. And so we look to you, Jesus, and we ask that you would humble our hearts, that you would make us one, and that you would glorify yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.